varlık bir medresedir evlat. Herkes birer talebedir. Ve tek müderrisimiz Allah'tır. O sıfatlarını tecelli ettirip bizleri imtihan eder. Lakin kahır ve lütuf, rahmet ve bela hep ondandır. Herkes kendi imtihanını yaşar. İmtihanı geçen, kendini yere deviren adamlar olmak lazım evlat. O zaman en büyük pehlivan da sensin, en büyük kahraman da. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I am joined by my co-hosts, Ilan Martin and Corey Schink. I'm Harrison Cayley. And today we are interviewing Stephen Hurtenstein. Stephen is the editor of the Ibn, Ar Ibn Arabi Society Journal. He is, or at least was, we'll get clarification from him, uh, the senior researcher fellow at the Society, and is the co-founder of Anka Publishing, which specializes in bringing texts from the great Sufi mystic and writer Ibn Arabi into English. And we've been reading his book recently, The Unlimited Mercifier, The Spiritual Life and Thought of Ibn Arabi. I've got a copy of it right there. And it is a, a work for the general public. It's not a um, tediously academic work that is hard to get, hard to get through. It is actually very readable. It is divided into um, opposing chapters of events and periods of Ibn Arabi's life and elucidations of some of his main ideas. And it is a very intriguing book. It is, um, you could almost say, magical reading the story of the life of this great man. And so we're going to be talking a bit about Ibn Arabi and Stephen's work so to start out with, I just want to, first of all, welcome you to the show, Stephen, and thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Pleasure now, to be here. Great, great to have you. Now, we, um, for the last couple of months, we've been reading a bunch of works on Sufism and trying to just um, find as much as we can. Of course, there's a lot to read, a lot to find, and that's how I came across your book. But in the process, as I was kind of searching on YouTube, I found videos of Ibn Arabi, and I'll clarify, and found out that there was a, a Turkish show, uh, Air to Rule, a Resurrection Air to Rule is how it's called in English. And Ibn Arabi it pl plays a quite a major role in that show. He is the kind of spiritual advisor that weaves in and out of the narrative. And um, of course, there's not a lot. Um, it's historical fiction. So the events, a lot of the events that take place are completely fictionalized. I don't know if there's any evidence to indicate that uh, Ibn Arabi had anything to do with Ertuğrul, but the I found that we've been watching it afterwards. We a bunch of us here started watching the show, and it's actually we quite enjoy it. And the actor that plays Ibn Arabi, we think, does a quite a good job. Um, are you familiar with the show? Have you seen it, Stephen? Just to, just out of curiosity, uh, I am. I think I've I think I've managed to watch four series out of five. Oh wow! Wow, we've we're just on the first series, so we're about two thirds done the first one, and. <laughs> Do you do you enjoy do you like the representation of Ibn Arabi in the show, Stephen? What do you think about that? Well, I I, I started watching it because uh, a friend of mine had told me that uh, there was a program on Netflix and they were doing a 
the whole thing with uh, Ibn Arabi as a counselor and advisor. So I thought, well, I better watch it just to find out. And uh, I got hooked, not <laughs> not particularly on the storyline, which is, you know, in, in many ways um, just fun. Yeah. But I started to uh, think about how they, how they were representing Ibn Arabi, which is, of course, actually almost entirely ahistorical. Um, there's very, uh, very little in the presentation of Ibn Arabi that you'd say, well, you know, this is like the man himself. Just as an example, he's you know, portrayed in the Netflix series as a, a kind of wandering dervish in robes um, with one other student who looks after him and uh, he pops up in various places, gives a bit of advice and disappears again. Mm -hmm. But, um, well, curiously, Ibn Arabi was a traveler, yes, but he wasn't a traveler in that sense. And he wouldn't possibly have had time to write all the books that he did if he'd been doing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's something I wanted to get into because, well, first of all, this sh we found out that the show itself, of course, was hugely popular in Turkey. But now that it's been translated into, well, English, it's being shown on Netflix, also into um, Urdu. It's being shown in, in Pakistan, and it's wildly popular in Pakistan. Just the first season or two have been uh, been released so far there. And so there, so it seems like there's probably a, a bunch of people, um, maybe in the English world, who are being exposed to this uh, character, this person for the first time. So one of the things that I wanted to do is get into a bit about who Ibn Arabi was, primarily, um, because a lot of people still aren't familiar with him. And then maybe we'll get into, well, let's start there. Who was Ibn Arabi and why is he referred to as um, al-Sheikh al-Akbar, um, basically the greatest sheikh. Like, what is it about Ibn Arabi that, um, first of all, the reason why he's so remembered today, um, at, maybe not in the Western world particularly, but in the Muslim world, and what features about him made him so great? Um, maybe we'll leave it there. Well, I suppose the, the first thing to say is that uh, unlike the portrayal in Resurrection Urturul, Ibn Arabi was, uh, I mean, they mention it obliquely, but he was born in Spain, in Al-Andalus, um, in Arab Spain, at a time when uh, Andalusian culture was really very sophisticated, far, far in advance of things happening in Europe, for example. And um, he, from a very, very early age, was clearly a different kind of human being. He has various experiences which um, mark him out as very unusual. Um, we can maybe go into some of those at a, at subsequently. But what he really contributed was he brought together uh, various kinds of traditions. So there is a, obviously um, a tradition of Sufism, however one understands that. Um, which fundamentally is to do with understanding the meaning of uh, philosophy, of religion, of uh, the world in which we live. But ultimately, it's an understanding of the human being, spiritually, ethically, philosophically, from every angle. So 
Um, this was a very rich tradition in Andalusia. So when, uh, when he left just before, actually probably 20 years before the Spanish reconquest of Spain, he was taking with him, as it were, the pinnacle of Andalusian culture and going then traveling across the Arab world to the center in Mecca and eventually embracing the eastern part all the way up to Anatolia, which is why Netflix has kind of embraced him. I mean, we can say more about the Ottoman influence and so on. But his, his main legacy, unlike most masters, was not simply a group of students who he trained, but an extraordinary outpouring of uh, writing, both prose and poetry, um, much of which until the last 20, 30 years was really only accessible in proper form in manuscripts. So a lot of work has been done, for example, in the last 10 years to actually uh, create a bank of critical editions in Arabic, so that one can say this is the text that he actually wrote. There are some complications with that story, which again, we can talk about. But fundamentally, these writings became the basis for a whole uh, training program, as it were, of others. So unlike other people's work, and I have to emphasize this right from the beginning, he said of his own work, uh, I don't write like other people do. I, I write under the impulse of inspiration. So however one is to understand that, there's no doubt that when you read the work, it does not read like a philosophical treatise. It does not read like uh, an intellectual exposition of how, how reality is. It is uh, full of allusion. It's full of poetry. It's full of image. and um, it is the most, probably the most sophisticated kind of writing that uh, exists in the Sufi world. It's not stories. For example, Jalaluddin Rumi would be famous for his telling of stories and weaving the meaning out of them. Um, Ibn Arabi probably tells two stories in his whole work in terms of that kind of story. Uh, he does, on the other hand, tell a lot of stories about people he met and what they said, what they did, as, as examples of how to live, uh, let's call it a, a properly human life. So I think what appeals to, what always has appealed and particularly appeals today, uh, is this kind of very broad, let's call it a phenomenology of the spirit has been used as, of, of his writing. It could be described as a, a full explanation, uh, top to bottom. Now, what people make of it is quite a different matter, but uh, it's it's there, as it were. The body of work is there. And before we get into some of the experiences of Ibn Arabi, like especially the, as you mentioned, as a youth, um, because as you show in your book, he experienced some some let's say, some great visions, but also uh, a kind of flowering of his own um, spirituality and personal development at a very early age, whereas for others it would take years, if not a lifetime, to achieve even that those first levels that, uh, that he did. But before we get into that, um, let's 
talk a little bit about that output of work of his, because um, as I've read in numerous places, he was a, an, an author of hundreds of works. I've seen various quotes, like 350, 400 different works, and it seems a lot of them are fairly short texts, um, ranging from anywhere from a few pages to a couple hundred pages. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But there is his magnum opus, the Al-Futuhat al-Makia, the, the Meccan openings or Meccan revelations, which spans, I believe, something like 10,000 pages. And there has yet to be a complete English translation, but I believe one is in the works um, by Dr. Eric Winkle. Um, could you talk a bit about the Futuhat and um, what it is? And maybe you can summarize it in, uh, in, a, in a few short words. <laughs> <laughs> oh well <laughs> uh, well let's first of all just say how the how the book came about because that that is uh, ne necessary uh, after Ibn Arabi's um, upbringing and education and training in Andalusia he he traveled when he was about in his third early 30s he traveled to Mecca um, clearly, um, he was doing the pilgrimage and so on. While he was, when he arrived in Mecca, he had probably four major experiences, one of which led to the writing of the Futuhat, in which he was, um, he was circumambulating the Kaaba and he describes a meeting with somebody he calls the youth. He doesn't specify a name or anything, but he says this, this person or youth was beyond space and time. And uh, describes himself as uh, knowledge, knower and the known. So he is some uh, figure, spirit figure, that is basically the instruction for the whole of the Futuhat, because this being says to him, uh, contemplate my structure and write down in your book uh, all that you see. So what is interesting about this is that the Futuhat really should be considered, I mean, some people have described it as an encyclopedia. It has 560 chapters. It covers absolutely every esoteric subject under the sun uh, at a level of writing which is utterly extraordinary. And as you said, uh, Dr. Winkle is now beginning the English translation, which is no mean feat at all, because to translate this out of Arabic into a language like English is a task in itself. However, this, uh, this book should really be conceived of as the if you like, the inner workings of the human being. Because what was represented in the original vision is a human being, a youth, which actually means not so much just a young man, but um, a human being in the prime of their full flowering of beauty and, uh, it, let's say, capacity. So one has to understand that this vision is, a, is something, um, it's, it's entirely to do with the inner workings of being human. 
So when we look at the Futuchat, we, we, we find all kinds of things in it, but these are all explanations of uh, what it means to be fully human. Mm. One of the things that I found quite remarkable in in your book, in Unlimited Mercifier, it's just, it comes up every now and again, and that is this experience of the, the kind of revelation that led to the writing of this book and the way that you describe it and that Ibn Arabi describe it, that it has to do with levels of reality and how on the highest level or on a high level, there is kind of pure meaning. And there's this kind of filtering process that goes on. So you have the world of meaning and then that gets kind of filtered and distilled down into um, an image. And then that image is then perceived by the senses. So I think it's in the context of a description of angels and how Ibn Arabi is describing how, how this happens, that there is kind of this pure, pure meaning that takes the shape, takes the form in the imaginal realm that then becomes kind of sensible to the, to the person, to the being that the, the human being that experiences it. And coupled with that, there is this, this um, really rich, like you mentioned, uh, allusions and this symbolism that is kind of inherent in all of this, that the, the language that the language of the actual vision itself is symbolic. And I believe it was, if not the youth, then maybe um, it was one of the, one of the figures in, in some of Ibn Arabi's visions that, that explicitly say, oh, I, I communicate in symbols or I communicate in, in images like this. It isn't a, it isn't a logical, um, like syntactical verbal structure that I'm, that I'm transmitting to you. It is something that has to be almost experienced and, um, and felt on like on every level and then translated into words. So that's almost how I see the process of, of his writing and why he distinguishes his writing from the way other people write is because it is kind of this, this direct translation of the images from this, from this realm that are themselves filters of this kind of universal meaning. Um, do I have that right? Or could you comment on, on those worlds and how that process works? Well, I think you put it very well. I mean, I can give you many examples of this in his own life that he describes, Sure. but let, let's just, uh, uh, just before I give you one example that, that illustrates what you meant, um, just to say the, the, the conception of meaning for us is we have to get away from the idea that this is an idea. Meaning is not an idea. Uh, what appears at the level of the intellect is an idea, but at deeper levels of, ex of human experience, meaning can be directly experienced. And this is what Ibn Arabi talks about as kashf, unveiling. So this is not something that is accessible to us simply by, um, let's say the exercise of ordinary thinking about and concluding. No, this is only, this is only accessible uh, by what he describes sitting at the door empty. He actually says, you know, we empty ourselves of reflective thinking. And then we sit with what is actually going on. And if what is what the reality which is actually going on reveals itself, that's up to it. 
it's not up to us. So there is a relation, this builds a relationship of, uh, let's say, putting one's own house in order, in order for something to be shown, rather than, um, I mean, we have to strive, of course, we have to ask, but there's no guarantee that about the result of this striving or the result of this asking. Um, it may come in very different forms. So let me go back just to give you an example of something that happened to him very early on. In fact, it's the first event of his life, apart from his birth, that we know about, uh, which illustrates the appearance of something at the level of uh, the imaginal world, which is not imagination, but it's a it's a it's a world of, a world of images and symbols where meaning appears more directly than it does in the sensible world. Because in one sense, the, the meaning has to appear clothed in certain form in order to then manifest in the sensible world. So this is why, for example, human beings, when they dream, are closer to meaning than they are in the world of, uh, of the senses. Uh, where physical distancing and all that start to enter in. There's no physical distance in the world of imagination. And you can not only physical distance and no temporal distance either. You can be in one moment in one place and in another moment in another place. So let's, let's take the example that he recounts of the, this very early event. He's, um, um, we don't know, maybe five or six, a child of five or six. And he um, is very ill. And I'm telling this story in the light of the situation in which we are today. Uh, he has uh, probably got some form of plague. Anyway, he goes into a coma. In this coma, um, his parents believe that he's going to die because many people are dying of this illness. And so his father does what any pious Muslim would do. He reads the Surah Yasin, um, which is a, a special Surah read over the dead or the dying. And um, Ibn Arabi then recounts that while he's in this coma, he has a vision, a dream vision, if you like, of a a person who appears and who uh, starts to defend him against all these horrible looking people who are trying to, to attack him. And this rather extraordinary being who is exuding a perfume uh, defeats them and vanquishes them and they disappear. And then he wakes up and he finds his father uh, at his bedside, having just finished reciting the Surah Yasin. Now, in the dream vision, Ibn Arabi is conscious enough to say to this being, who are you? And the being replies, I am the Surah Yasin, and I'm here to protect you. So now we have a situation where something is happening at multiple levels simultaneously where in the outer world of the senses, uh, somebody is reciting a surah, but the surah is appearing in the inner world of Ibn Arabi as a, 
defender, as a protector, and also as an eternally living being. So it is not simply words on a page. This is an active presence, uh, which is being seen. Of course, the father is in, is in one sense invoking it. But in Ibn Arabi's universe, let's say, this is taking shape and is actively protecting him. So this is, this is important because the Qur'an itself is understood as the word of God. But, and there are many things that have been written about what that means. But for Ibn Arabi, it actually means that these, uh, that these uh, words and surahs and verses are living presences. And they have the power to uh, act through and on human beings if the person is receptive to them. Now, in Ibn Arabi's case, you could say that this surah effectively uh, revived him from the dead because he, he was effectively dead and it was being recited over him. So it is like a near-death, what we would call a near-death experience. Uh, in other words, meaning, going back to your original question, can descend in, let's say, different modalities. It can descend at the level of image, where it is uh, seen and perceived as active. And uh, it's in a very, very different uh, arena then from meaning at the level of the intellect where it's actually, uh, according to certain Sufis, a dead thing. And there's no, a very that's... famous, very I'm famous sorry, saying Abu Yazid Bistami who said, uh, who said to the scholars of his time, you take your knowledge like a, like a dead person from the dead, like a dead thing from a dead person. We take our knowledge from the living one who never dies. So this is a reference, actually, to this kind of experience that I've just uh, uh, given you an example of. And it occurs many, many times through Ibn Arabi's life, uh, this, let's say, revelation of meaning in a, in a form. And it can be a form in a vision, but it can also be a sensory form, like the vision of the youth. Um, and it's a direct witnessing or contemplation that then takes place. And that's in that sense, all his writing is flowing from those visions, those contemplations. Now that space that exists, that Ibn Rabi is able to experience um, this unity of God and all the names and the, all these different levels of reality. In your book, you discuss um, it's an inward experience called the inner face, I believe. Could you describe, um, if I'm correct, the, the role that the inner face plays for Ibn Arabi in, uh, in his religious life? Okay, let me, let me give you an image. Uh, actually, it's called the private face, um, or special face, but private face is the usual translation I would use. Um, so each... Each of us has a, has a face towards the world, towards the outer, um, which we could call, in that sense, a public face. We also have a 
a private face towards our own reality, which is only known to us, can only be known to us. To give you an image of what that might be like, if you had a circle, any point on the circumference of the circle can relate to any other point on the circumference uh, and in many multiple ways. But each point on the circumference has a direct relationship to the center, which only the, that particular point has. No other point has this. Each point has, in that sense, a, a totally individual connection to the center of the circle. And the reason I'm representing it like that is not only is that an image that it narrowly uses, but we can see that um, in the we live in we live in a world which is apparently um, has many things in it. It's an outer world, and at the same time, we're aware that there is an inner world which each of us uh, inhabits which is um, actually unique to us, and we share uh, only intimations of it with others, because we can't actually externalize this inner world. This inner world is inner by definition. So if you were to think of the whole of the outer world as a semicircle that is manifest, then by definition, there must be, if you think of it as a circle, there must be a hidden semicircle. But both sides of it, and I emphasize both sides of it, form a unity, which is dependent on a central point. So those who are aware that all that is uh, has sprung from this central point, they are what we might call mystics, saints, people of the spirit, etc., or people of the heart, uh, many descriptions. And there are obviously many variations in how people are going to express this, but the fundamentals don't change from one generation to another. This is, a, if you like, a, a human, eternally human capacity that everybody has. Stephen, one of the most uh, surprising and compelling uh, parts to his story is the dreams that he had of Christ, Jesus, uh, Moses, and Muhammad. Uh, I found it very surprising that he would be so inspired by these uh, three different um, voices or or. Uh, beings that would be the cause of so much inspiration for him and move him from within to follow his path and course. And it reminded me of um, a guest we had a few months ago by the name of Joseph Azizi, who is a Gurdjieffian scholar who spoke of these um, exercises called the Four Ideals where in meditation an individual would actually in some way try to reach out to uh, Moses, Jesus, Buddha, what have you. And it seemed to me that for Ibn Arabi, the, these dreams that he had, the inspiration that uh, 
these communications were the cause of in him had some kind of uh, objective existence in a sense. And I was just wondering if you might speak to the idea that that these voices, these spirits or beings may or may not have an objective existence uh, outside of Arabi's dreams. What, what, in other words, do you suspect or or believe uh, is the reality to the Jesus, Muhammad, and Moses that so inspired Ibn Arabi? Well, I, I suppose the first thing to say is that um, these are three figures um, who represent the three major religions uh, in the Abrahamic tradition. And their uh, life and teachings and actions in the world expressed some um, aspect or um, face of wisdom for particular peoples at the time. However, from an interior point of view, their spiritual reality is not confined to their appearance in the world. It is, um, let's say, an active force in the way that I was talking about the, the surah of the Quran uh, manifesting as a human being rather than as words. We can say also that human beings who uh, have the task of educating others have to uh, manifest in the world, but their reality is a constant expression of, let's say, guidance. Mm. Now, that th the reason I'm putting it that way is because the question about objective, subjective, is not really relevant because it's predicated on, on some sort of understanding of uh, a difference between a subject and an object. Now, if you start from the point of view that what, is, what actually exists in reality is one reality and one being, then what has appeared as these two aspects is actually the same thing. So from that point of view, the whole of reality is actually entirely 100% subjective. But it's not according to the individual subject. It's according to the universal subject. So people think that they are human beings striving to understand something. It may be that what they actually are is reality striving to express itself in that particular mode. Mm. 
in which case what we actually share is something um, at the at the level of reality not at the level of appearance at the level of appearance we are different and we have to be different but at the level of reality we may actually realize that we are identical in that sense we can say for example if you take the case of uh, ibn arabi's teachings all the prophets that have been sent have been sent from Adam onwards, all the way to Muhammad, to express uh, truths and wisdom to human beings in different communities at different times and to, to orientate them to the same fundamental reality. At different times, a certain expression was needed. Let's say at the time of Noah, um, it might have been needed to have emphasized the transcendent nature of God as opposed to the, to the worship of idols. At another time, something else might be needed. Um, let's say at the time of Jesus, what is brought is something much more uh, manifest in terms of um, the, the realization of the human being as the image of God. So all of these, if you take them all together, as one continuum, begin to point to a very different level of um, seeing these, uh, let's call them spiritual realities. They are teaching, educating, that's their nature. So in the case of Ibn Arabi, for example, he talks about several meeting several prophets um, First was Jesus, second was Moses, third was Muhammad, but then it goes on to others until he's brought to the, the full realization of what the reality of the human being actually is, which embraces all those images. Because going back to our, our discussion about image, you can say, well, meaning can appear in this image, but it can also appear in that image. So in, in this image, it looks this way. In another image, it could almost look like the opposite, but it's still the same reality manifesting. Does that make sense to you? It does. Thank you. <laughs> and that's a fantastic explanation. Thank you very much. And that's that's also reflected in the, the wider, I guess, cosmology, you could put it, of the the, the divine essence and then the the divine names so the the there's the indescribable unfathomable whole of the essence and then it is expressed through these names in all of reality and on all levels which can be like you said opposites of each other like um the whether mercy and compassion or wrath and so there is, so it seems like almost this, what you, what you provided with this image of the prophets is almost like a, a bit of a hologram or a fractal of this, this wider image, which is, that is a reflection of the whole of reality as well, where every facet of reality, no matter how, um, how at odds or seemingly opposite of the other is an expression of that unity at that total level. Um, could you maybe comment a bit on Ibn Arabi's idea of, well, not his idea, but his, um, 
his explanation of the names of God and how he understood that. Well, I just gave a 10-week course in, uh, <laughs> at the university on this subject. Sign <laughs> so, up below, so everyone. Me, so I'll, I'll give you a five-minute summary. Right, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think the first thing to say is that, uh, like, uh, like everybody approaching this subject, we should we should be uh, tread warily because, um, first of all, a name is uh, is a pointer, is a is a kind of um, it's a pointer to the person. So, in the case of the names, what we call the names of God, they are pointers to the one named and that's their that's what they all share in common on the other side each name has its own kind of individuality that differentiates it from another name but there is one name uh, which designates the person in their entirety so in the case of you know you could say well i have for me, you could say, well, my name is Stephen, but actually I might have other names that you don't know about. But for the purposes of this, this is my personal name. So you relate to me through that name, which means that you're not interested in the qualities that Stephen has or possesses or shows. You are simply interested in the personal name so that you can address me and I will answer. In the Islamic tradition, this name is, of course, Allah, um, which Ibn Arabi says is a, is a personal name of God. It's what God names himself as. Uh, this is the reasoning behind, for example, certain practices in Sufi tariqas, where this name is, re is repeated and reiterated as a, um, similar to a mantra, as a way of invoking the presence of the one named. But this one named comes with um all the qualities that they possess so if you call me stephen i respond to you but i may respond uh with kindness i might respond with generosity i might respond in many different ways so these these are the qualities that i possess which are manifested at any particular moment in accordance with how you are asking me. So for Ibn Arabi, this means that when, for example, a person invokes reality, they invoke the same reality, Allah, let us say, but their state requires something specific. So if you are in the middle of uh, the sea and you are drowning and you say, save me, you are appealing to God on one side, but also to a particular name, the rescuer. 
So this is where the doctrine of the names comes in. So for each moment, you are actually invoking a particular name. Now, you may be aware of the particular name that you're invoking. I've given you a very um, obvious example. But you may be unaware. So you think it is God who is responding to you. You think it is Allah who is responding to you. In one respect, you're right. In another respect, Allah does not respond to you. It is his names that respond. So this is why I said right at the beginning, a note of caution, because uh, you cannot know the full weight and meaning of this name, Allah, unless you become like the earth and you are ready to receive whatever comes from heaven, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. And then you will become, in the terminology that Ibn Arabi uses, then you can understand what is meant by Abdullah, servant of Allah. Otherwise, you are servant of particular names. Now, I want to take that example that you used with, with the rescuer and the, the man at sea and go a bit further with it. Now, let's say that there is a, a drowning man and cries out to be rescued. And then a boat appears with another man in it who rescues him. Now, would Ibn Arabi, might he say that the, the manifestation of that man, you know, in our reality, was in a, sen in, in a sense um, acting as or kind of channeling or being that name of God in that moment for the drowning man? Yes, the name, the name has to manifest. How does the name manifest? It manifests through the agency in this world of a particular cause and effect. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, that's, that's actually what this world is. But we don't realize, we don't see it like that. We don't see that actually all it is, is names demanding to be manifest. Mm. So, um, for example, you pass a, a man begging on the street. And it's your impulse to, to uh, give them money. So you are acting generously. What is actually happening? The, the beggar is, is in need, is, like a, is, is in the state of uh, ser servanthood, has nothing of their own. You are, have be are becoming the place of manifestation of the name the generous or the giver because there are many forms of giving could, could happen. So uh, from that point of view, you are not you at all. You are simply the place of manifestation of a particular name. If you were aware of this, uh, apart from anything else, life is a lot easier. Hmm. Is there room in, in that, that world for the personal name? Stephen or Corey, where, what does that name mean? Or is that just a subset of a larger name dependent on the, our choices and our character? Well, people get given names for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, actually, I don't know why, why that particular name was given to me. I, I never <laughs> managed to find out from my parents. But 
uh, let's just say um, it, there's a common practice that that a person is renamed in inverted commas uh, as a spiritual uh, aspect of their development. Um, so at a certain stage, they may be given another name. And this is quite a common practice within, within the Islamic tradition, but also in Hindu tradition and so on and so on. So this is, not a, this is to show that what happened to you at birth, where somebody had to write on a birth certificate a particular name, is, it, it doesn't determine you, it doesn't limit you. It may or may not uh, feel like your name. So if you came to know the particular aspects of your own self, then maybe you will suddenly find that, that an, a new name appears. But it's not really very important because it's a designation for the outer world. Mm -hmm. What's important to realize is that what we, what we understand as names of God are, in Ibn Arabi's terms, names of names. So we say that God is merciful, we say that God is generous, but the meaning of that name is the real name. What we know is the name of that name. So we may, uh, each person will have a different take on what being generous, what God's generosity is, or what God's mercy is. But we may only have a very uh, limited view of it because we are uh, we are not at the level of its meaning we are at the level of the name of the name mm -hmm. and for an individual like ibn arabi i would suppose he has a a much more direct understanding of all of this um a, a direct experience of all of this and uh and a direct connection and almost like identical or like merging with the meaning that uh, that for us ordinary folks is just uh, the name of the name. Now, and this this re reminds me of the thing we discussed earlier about the the levels and the the the meaning that takes the, the form of an image that is then experienced in the sensory world. And that reminded me of a story of I think it was one of Ibn Arabi's encounters with uh, Kedar, and uh, I probably butcher that pronunciation, but he's one of, the, one of these figures that Ibn Arabi um, encountered three times. And I believe this was the one where um, he was in a mosque with someone, and I'll leave out some important details, but basically he saw this, this being, this man, lift his rug up into the air and climb onto this floating rug and do his prayers in the mosque on this floating rug. And then several pages later in the book, you, you comment that at some place, Ibn Arabi basically says, well, the true meaning of walking in the air or on the air, it, it, it's, not just, um, it's not just this external miracle. It is actually, I believe, um, it was something like, um, like being above your, your own like, uh, earthly material emotions and, and kind of the stuff going on in that lowly, lowly level. It's kind of that rising above is to exist in a higher state or something like that. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. But the, what all of those things kind of coalesce together for me, is the, the way in which they coalesce together is to give this picture of an entirely, do, an, an entirely new way of 
looking at and experiencing the world where even the, well, primarily, the things that we experience in in the material world, all of our interactions are actually themselves like a symbolic representation of some higher meaning, some some aspect of that intangible, um, invisible world that is being expressed in this earthly form. And as we go about our lives just ordinarily and kind of in this sleepwalking state, we don't see that. We just, we, we take it for what it seems to be. Right. We can't really experience it inwardly. We don't see the meaning. Right. But there is the possibility of seeing the meaning in all of that. And this, this is kind of, this is exemplified or brought to its kind of pinnacle in individuals like the prophets or like Ibn Arabi himself, who was on the one hand very um, clear and let's say kind of like explicitly honest about his own achievements, but on the other hand, extremely humble at the same time. There's this kind of dichotomy between the two. He'll, he'll, say, he'll say things that coming from anyone else's mouth will just be, would seem like the height of arrogance, but really are just kind of were for him statements of fact. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, at the same time, there is this humility to him. So in, in that, uh, Stephen, well, first of all, if you have any comments on what I said, um, anything I said in there, but in addition to that, could you speak of um, Ibn Arabi and his, this gets back to the experiences that he had and his own development, how uh, could you speak about how he kind of was a model for experiencing directly those names and how that contributed to his stature as um, like the, the greatest sheikh? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, well, let's just try and un- unpick some of the, the bits of it. Um, we mentioned this vision, this dream vision of Jesus, Moses, and Muhammad, uh, which happened very early in his life, really, at the age of 15. Um, as a result of which, in fact, he goes off to, he's sent to Cordoba by his father to go and talk to Ibn Rushd, Averroes, um, who expressed a wish to meet him because um, Averroes, who was, who was in his, probably in his 70s at the time, was the, probably the premier philosopher of the day. A great man. Um, not a philosopher in the, in the sense that we might think of it, because this is, a, this is somebody who is steeped in uh, the Islamic tradition and therefore um, a, a believer philosopher, let's say. But he had only reached a certain level in terms of rationality, and he expressed uh, a wish to meet this this character who had had such an extraordinary vision. So, um, in relation to your question of Ibn Arabi's training, in one respect, Ibn Arabi is trained uh, not by the normal processes. It's clear that he has visions like this, and it puts him in a, in a, in, into a situation where, at a certain point, he needs to, to, be, to have masters and benefit from other people. And that happens probably at the age of 17 or 18, when he's in Seville. 
and he undergoes a, tra a training program with various masters, the first of whom uh, is a very interesting character and it's worth um, kind of looking at the interaction that happens between them because it tells us a lot about uh, what spiritual teaching actually is about. So um, this is a man called Abu Jafar al-Urabi who was a, again an old man and, and blind when Ibn Arabi met him in Seville. And in what, Ibn Arabi tells the story of their first meeting several times. Now, usually when he does that, that means it's a very significant story and something that um, you know, we, should, we should pay deep attention to and in all, in all its detail. So in one of the accounts, he, he says that um, before he entered the room where this potential master was going to be, he said to him, I'm, uh, I don't want you to look on, look on my face until uh, I have carried out some piece of advice which you give me. So can you please give me some advice? Uh, and he says, um, Nibnavi says, I, I want this because then you will only look at me when you see uh, what he calls your robe of honor upon me. In other words, you'll see the benefit of the advice actually manifested. So of course the master is a bit, is a bit, um, um, <laughs> I, I guess he must've been pretty impressed. This was a pretty <laughs> unusual student to have said such a thing. So he says, this is a very high and noble aspiration so then he gives him the advice, which this advice is repeated in several places. It's mentioned in my book, but he says, literally, close the door, uh, sever the connections, and sit with the one who gives freely. And he will speak to you without a veil. Um, and then Ibn Arabi writes, I acted on this advice until I saw its blessing. And then I went back to my master and he saw its robe on me. So in other words, he's saying, uh, I'd got to a point where uh, the divine could speak to me directly without a veil. Then the master says, exactly, this is it, like this. If not, then not. It's a very kind of elliptical phrase. Then he's, he says to Ibn Arabi the following, erase what you write, forget what you memorize, be ignorant of what you know, and be like that with the divine in every state. Do not speak with the divine with what you know already because that would mean that you are neglecting the moment. Well, this is a powerful, powerful piece of advice apart from anything, but it's, a, it's clearly coming from somebody who knows what it means not to neglect the moment, this present moment, which is actually all we have. So one can see uh, in this advice, there is, um, there is something coming from the outside, from a master, 
but it's something that that actually is about the the uh, the living quality of education it's not a thing at all it's an experience it has to be practiced it has to be worked for and so on and so on so this is just an example of the kind of advice that Ibn Arabi was given, which he then transmits to others and says, this is, this is the way you should behave. This is the way you should look at things. So he's not doing, he doesn't tell us everything. Uh, in regard to the stories about Khida, the green man, um, Apparently, he only meets him three times. Now, Khida is a figure, this mysterious, immortal figure, who uh, is there to educate those who have no earthly teacher. So in, in one respect, these are autodidacts, people who um, have a direct, they know their own direct connection to the divine. But they still need to be educated because we all need, we are all in education. But what Khida brings is an education, uh, it's a kind of strange education to do with actions and things that uh, appear in the outer world. So for example, the first time he meets him, um, Khida actually tells him uh, to go back to his master, the same master, because they'd had an argument, go back to him uh, and listen to him, pay attention to him. And he doesn't know who this guy is in the street in Seville, but he goes back and the master says, you know, do you really have to have Khida come to you and tell you what to do? <laughs> so it's a kind of ch a chastisement, a little bit of chastisement showing, uh, you know, if you have a relationship with a master or a spiritual teacher, you, you are putting yourself in their hands and you have to have trust in the situation. Even if you know they're wrong, you still have to kind of, keep the keep the format um and in this case actually ibn arabi says i was right and he was wrong but that's another matter um <laughs> the second time he meets khida is uh khida is actually walking on water so in the first case he was walking on the land now he's walking on water and praising god he says and walks across the bay of tunis to a lighthouse um, the third time is the one you mentioned, where he's on a uh, prayer rug in a mosque doing his prayers, doing it incidentally because there was a guy there who, who said, I don't believe in miracles. And, he, and Khida explains to Ibn Arabi afterwards, I only did it because of this guy, you know, so that, you, so that he'd see something that uh, is... is um, from that kind of level of things. So we have earth, we have water, we have air, uh, all of which the human being is acting in. So in one respect, these are outer events, but from a, from a spiritual point of view, as you were point, alluding to, whatever is happening in the outer world, it also has uh, an inner, resonance let's say with meaning it has an inner meaning to it which is of a different level entirely so in the case of, of um, let's say flying through the air um, it's 
if you don't take it literally, then you can understand that what it means is something more akin to the way that thought can fly. It's more akin to the way that your imagination works, instantly traveling without any barrier. You can also understand it as, as referring in another sense to the spiritual ascension uh, in the imitation of Muhammad, because the Prophet Muhammad was taken up through the levels of the, um, of the heavens in a spiritual journey, and that takes place, as it were, in the air. So it's an allusion to ascension primarily, mm. and uh, to to the fact that this is this is a uh, this is possible for human beings if they understand what it refers to. That's a fairly long answer to your comment. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I wanted to follow up on that great answer, Stephen, because um, something you write about in your book is the uh, the state of sleep that uh, humankind is in, and perhaps um, the intention the prophet had in helping to wake people up, not through a, an intellectual exercise or learning in a scholastic sense, but through metaphor, through symbol. And I guess what I'm asking is, in addition to the, the wakefulness to God and the faces of God and to the higher reality, if you had to encapsulate uh, his intentions in being a prophet, uh, what, what might they have been? Or what, what else can we say about his mission or his aim or his charge? Um, in what he was doing. Well, in the words in the words of uh, the Quran, um, addressed to Muhammad in this particular case, we have only sent you as mercy to the universes. So, the function of the prophet is to uh, to act as the as the vehicle of supreme mercy to uh, all the levels of existence all beings at those levels and also uh, to intercede for them in their um, let's say having been manifested now, let me give you an, the reason I'm saying it like that is give you an example. It's not only in, re, in reference to Muhammad's um, own words, but um, let's take this as a, a, let's conceive of this from the top downwards, let's say, as if you were looking from the top of the pyramid of existence at the whole of it. There is a famous um, divine saying, I was a hidden treasure and I love to be known. So I created the world that I might be known. So 
So that initial I of I was a hidden treasure is the first expression of the inexpressible, the inexpressible absolute, let's say. How does that which is absolute and inexpressible, how is it going to come into expression? How is it possible? There has to be something arising, as it were, within it to produce creation. So in the case of this saying and the way they interpret it, I was a hidden treasure. So as soon as the I has been said, there is an I and there is that from which the I has come. But this I knows itself as a treasure and in all, with all the implications of the, let's say, the, the distinctions and varieties and possibilities and differentiations that are hidden within this treasure. And then he says, I love to be known. So that love is a motive force for the expression of this treasure. But it's not just, uh, well, you know, I'm, I find, you know, here I am in this uh, lockdown world on my own. And suddenly I realize I've got all these possibilities, but I need, I need a venue in which to, in, in which to uh, express myself mm. because I'm generous, but there's nobody to be generous to. Mm-hmm. Now, Ibn Arabi in a very, very daring place actually uh, personifies the names and says, you know, the generous says, the generous says, not, not the I, the generous says, well, I, I'm, a gen- I'm generous, but I, I can't, there's nobody to be generous to. And the, the powerful says, I'm powerful, but there's nobody for me to be powerful over. And so on and so on. All the names have this problem, in other words. They've got nowhere to manifest. So they're all talking to each other and saying, well, what are we going to do? You know, so they go to the knower and they say, well, look, we're in this situation. Tell us what to do. You know. And the knower says, well, um, sort of. But we should really go to the name Allah because the name Allah knows, really. So they all go to the name Allah and say, look, we're in this situation. We can't manifest anything. We, we don't even know what it means, you know, to be what we are. I'm generous, but I don't know what it means even because I can't express myself. So Allah says, fine. And then there's a very nice line in one of the expositions of this kind of drama. Allah goes and has a secret conversation with the essence, with the inexpressible before the I essence. It comes back and says, basically says, right, it's time to begin and designates who who starts it and all the rest of it. So out of all this is coming a, a reason for creation, which is all these names wish to be known. All of them. they, They need to manifest. They want to express their effects. They have to have a place of manifestation. So that that whole thing produces the whole of manifestation. But there is also a process of return 
and especially important for human beings because of their, their capacity and rationale. So the human being is, in these accounts, the very reason why all of these names are doing it. Because, in fact, all these names are names of the true human being. So in one, in one of his accounts, Ibn Arabi says, you know, they, the knower told them, well, you know what? You're all names who designate this person called the reality of Muhammad. And they said, well, we've never heard of him. We don't know who he is. What are you talking about? And he, said, and he says, you'll find out. Anyway, what it means is that the human being, this is an expression, this is a way of explaining how the human being is not at all the kind of little human being that we think. It is the, it is the, uh, what's expressed in the Western tradition as the image of God, that this, this I, this original I, has to have a uh, full image. Like if you look in a mirror, you see all of yourself. So that all of yourself is you entirely. In fact, uh, you, you have to have this situation in order for you to do anything. So what is going on at the level of um, the names is actually the playing out of this total universal human being. And this is Ibn Arabi's perhaps greatest contribution of all, that mm -hmm. he talks about al-insan al-kamil, the perfect human being. Uh, some people translate perfect man, but in these days of gender equality, I prefer the perfect human being or the complete human being. Because from the point of view of where we are as human beings, we are not a complete or perfect human being at all. We only have that in potential. We have to realize the meaning of what it is to be human. If we were to realize the meaning of being human, we would realize that the, uh, everything that is out there in the universe is actually in us and that we are also in the universe in every particle. Therefore, how we treat others, how we behave towards the animals, towards the environment, is an intrinsic part of how we are behaving towards ourselves. I want to ask a question about this, this return path. You know, the going back, to, uh, the, the, the reverse of the, the process from above to below now. Now, this process of uh, realization of the, the perfect human being or the the complete human being. Um, so I was wondering if, if you could tell me if there's any relation to, well, or what the relation is to the actual practices of Sufis. Um, Cause I know today there are, there are a ton of uh, Sufi orders and they have specific practices, whether it is types of prayer or um, well, I don't even know. I'm not familiar with a lot of the Sufi practices. Maybe like some some breathing exercises. Of course, there's the the, the whirling dervishes, the mivlevi uh, spinning dancing. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, maybe some either modern Sufi practices or what we might know about the practices that Ibn Arabi 
recommended or that we know that he engaged in. Um, how much information uh, is there about the kind of daily grind of of spiritual living in um, in Ibn Arabi's actual works? Well, in a way, in a way, his works are all about the the grind of spiritual living. <laughs> I, um, I I just remembered as you were speaking that uh, he says somewhere. Um, he's talking about people praying in a mosque and he says some people when they pray um, they're praying to a brick wall some people when they pray are in contemplation of their beloved so the the real question is to do with um, what degree of presence and of awareness exists for each individual. So if you do a practice, you might say, I mean, let's say the, the five ritual prayers a day are a practice. The going on Hajj pilgrimage is a practice. These are actions. There might be many motivations involved, such as I want to look good among my peers. I want to do what I've been told to do, and so on and so on and so on. They always have the possibility, because of their intention, they have the possibility of full realization. But if it was so easy, for full realization to happen, then there would be many realized people in the world. Fact is, it's not easy because of the, uh, let's say, the attractions that there are to um, levels below full realization. And those are like colors which each person has taken on in their descent, which have to be met with on their. Uh, reascent journey so one aspect of that is having to deal with as it were all the psychological elements of being embodied on the other side is um, what Ibn Arabi really provides is a kind of roadmap for uh, how this return can take place it's not so much a question of practices in one of his examples to, to a, a student, he actually said, um, never, ever, this is kind of, he said, I bequeath to you one request, one thing. This is your bequest. Never, ever forget your servanthood. Never, ever forget your servanthood. So that is the most fundamental thing, we are servant. We are, um, like I was expressing before, places of manifestation. Nothing belongs to a place of manifestation. Nothing belongs to a servant. What does a servant have? A servant is there to serve. They, are, they, are, uh, they have no will of their own. They're, it's their master's will that they're carrying out. 
there's a very nice example, which is a funny story, which might which might be an, a, a way of kind of expressing it. Um, this is a historical story, which Ibn Arabi tells in one of his um, sort of more liter literature books. Uh, he's talking about a delegation of Franks, what he calls Franks, obviously Christians, probably from the north of Spain, who came to Cordoba to visit the uh, Sultan uh, of Al-Andalus. Um, who at that time was the most powerful man around. So they were, they were coming to uh, pay their respects. So the Sultan uh, had a summer palace just outside uh, Cordoba called Medina Tazahra, uh, which is today a ruin. Anyway, he, was, he, was, uh, he gave orders that this delegation of Franks, these foreigners, should... Um, uh, walk from Cordoba to Medina to Zakra. It's a, probably about two to three miles, something like this. But along the way, he put soldiers, and each of them had a scimitar, a curved blade, and they formed a uh, a kind of canopy of swords, all lining the route on both sides. Two miles through this, um, Ibn Arabi remarks, you can only imagine how terrified they must have been. When they get to the gates of Medina to Zahra, there is a carpet laid out, and there are various places uh, where there are grand, there's a grand official, and they, they, uh, they go to the first one because they think it's the Sultan, and they start bowing and everything. And this is just one of his servants. And they go on, they go on a little bit further, and there's another guy, even more beautifully dressed, and they start bowing again. No, no, no, no, no. This is just one of his servants. Get up. And they carry on, carry on, carry on. This happens several times. Eventually they get to a to a square where there is a a, a man sitting on the ground in clothes that are you know, worth a half a dollar. And he's got a, a fire in front of him, a brazier and a book. And um, they're told, this is the Sultan. Now you prostrate. So they prostrate and they, they, they're so overcome. Anyway, the, the Sultan says, um, we have been ordered to invite you to this, and he points to the book, which is the Quran. He says, if you don't obey that, we will come after you with this. And next to him, they see a sword. And as a result of this pointing at the sword, he says, you will be cast into this, the fire. And he won't allow them to speak. He just sends them away. And the, the, the coder at the end says, um, 
after this, they, they agreed to the Sultan's terms unquestioningly. <laughs> now, we don't know if this is a, if this is a, um, a kind of historical event. We have absolutely no idea. But it's interesting that Ibn Arabi tells it because from in one respect, we can say that, that we are all Franks. We are all this delegation. And we are, uh, in our approach to the divine person, we go through, first of all, we have to endure fear. Mm-hmm. Because um, of who, what we've become in the, you know, what we've done. So forgiveness enters into it, let's say. We then get to a stage where uh, we may think that um, it's all about spiritual riches, spiritual wealth, being having spiritual power and all these fantastic things and all the rest of it. No, nothing to do with it. The end of it all is a servant, a servant sitting there, one who knows that they're a servant. So you can see that, that this, story, this story works at multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's very curious, actually, because um, it's, in, it's in a book of ordinary stories about sultans and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling it really as a, as a kind of way of uh, explaining that it's not about the practices, it's not about the different ways, you know, the different roads you can take to get to this point. Um, they all exist. If it helps you move in the right direction, fine. But it can become an obstacle in itself. Um, I mean, Rumi gives a very nice example where he says, you know, when people come on pilgrimage, they come from uh, Afghanistan, they come from Anatolia, they come from um, Tunisia, but they all end up in the same place. So where you've come from, how you, the particular road that you've taken is irrelevant when you've arrived. And one has to bear that in mind in terms of you know, the, the practices and so on. They are all designed to bring people to the same realization. Great. That was a fantastic explanation. Thank you for that. Good story, too. Very good story. It reminds me of, um, you write about in, in your book, The Unlimited Mercifier, uh, in a roundabout way, um, of Ibn Arabi and his time as a soldier. And when he went, um, I can't remember what, he saw, I think, his general, a very powerful man, uh, prostrate before God. And <laughs> and when he saw that, he, he thought to himself, if this powerful man is going to bow down uh, before God, then you know I might as well just get on God's side and get this done with, <laughs> and then went on the way himself. He had a very unique and, uh, and beautiful mind, definitely like a purity of heart that you don't see, and it's it sometimes make it makes it a little bit difficult to, I think, understand him because it seems like he comes from such another world, and you know all the stories and everything. Um, not really stories, but the visions uh, are so otherworldly that it's very difficult, I think, as a Westerner to, or just as a, a normal person, to really appreciate 
what it is that he's he's saying because it's so deep and so symbolic and the, the, the story that you related you know so deep and symbolic in so many ways and you can unpack it if you just have if you just put your your mind and some time into it you can explore these the meaning behind all of this and it just it speaks to you in such an interesting way on on just so many different levels um so we appreciate you being able to be here and to to do that for us because it's a, it's a very very very complicated complicated subject and i think our audience is going to be very very happy to have you well that's very very kind of you i mean i think i think there's absolutely no doubt that um, sometimes a, a story or a piece of writing that he that he lets drop or a poem uh, can have the most dramatic impact. Um, I can tell a story from my own experience. You know, mm -hmm. uh, um, when I first came across the name Ibn Arabi uh, years and years and years ago at university, I was reading a book by Reynold Nicholson called The Mystics of Islam. And at that time, I, I didn't even know the, really the name Sufism or what it meant. It didn't, there were no books around apart from anything else. And certainly nobody in the history department where I was studying would, would have even encouraged me in that direction at all. So anyway, I picked up this book, I started reading, and I remember to this day the impact that something had. I can even remember the, the, the page that it was written on. And it was uh, the most famous poem I discovered later, or most famous, I mean, most well-known of Ibn Arabi's poems, where he talks about, my heart has become capable of all forms. Um, mm. I, it's a temple for idols, um, cloister for Christian monks, um, I'm going not to remember all of them, but there are six elements, the tables of the Torah, the book of the Quran, and so on. Wherever loves camels go, that is my religion and my faith. I follow the religion of love. So it had a dramatic impact when I read this because the, um, I understood it at a deep level, let's say at a heart level. But intellectually, I didn't understand it at all. <laughs> it, it was kind of, all, not exactly gobbledygook, but I understood the words, of course. But I couldn't get my head around it. It was just like uh, as if somebody talked to me from uh, a different planet, and yet I could understand what had been said. Now, being, I suppose, intellectually curious, and that's how I was trained, um, I thought, well, there's something here I really need to get to grips with because this is extraordinary writing. But it wasn't, it, it wasn't like the same, it didn't have the impact, let's say, that a beautiful poem would have, a poem by Shakespeare or Wordsworth or something. No, that appeals... That appeals um, uh, less directly, let's say, to the heart. And I found that with Ibn Arabi's writing, this has been a journey I've been on for decades, I find it speaks very directly to the heart, and gradually your mind starts to catch up. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So stick at it would be the answer. Find other people <laughs> who who are interested in in reading his work and discussing it, and mm-hmm. you'll find uh, it's it's a journey of exploration. It's um, um, a journey where where fresh meaning comes, or meaning comes fresh. And that's what's important. It's not a packaged thing. It's not something you can go out and buy in the supermarket. It'll be well, freshly cooked for you, not for anybody else. <laughs> Prepare your own dish. Are yeah. you working on anything? You said you just got done with a 10-week course. Um, you're teaching that. Are you, are you working on anything else right now? Translations, writing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm laughing because, uh, well, um, the sort of number of projects I have at the moment. Well, one is one is I'm working on a book. Uh, Ibn Arabi wrote on the divine names, which a friend of mine um, translated into Spanish, and we're working on the English translation at the moment. It's been actually a very difficult book to work on um, because it's very condensed. Uh, wonderful book but uh, extremely illuminating and important today but difficult at the same time because of the the you know in one sentence there are so many uh, possible readings or possible meanings and you have to kind of unpack it and in the end you, you kind of the only way to do that is to kind of ask yourself well what does it mean you know what what what is what is the meaning here it's not obvious you can read the arabic and then you think well Yes, but what does that mean? And if you don't know what it means, you can't translate. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a, it's a, that's a kind of journey in itself. The other thing that I'm working on at the moment uh, is also a um, new edition and translation of Ibn Arabi's Prayers for the Days of the Week. Um, I originally did, uh, did a translation of this called The Seven Days of the Heart, which is... Um, and they're, they're, extraordinary prayers which are recited you know morning and evening um it had always been a a kind of uh, in the back of my mind a need to go back to the original manuscripts of which there are hundreds and try to see whether we could find the um, make a good edition of of these prayers because they it's a bit like a river that has flowed into a delta it's it's gone into uh, many different streams slight variations and so on and i was conscious that um there needed to be something a sort of stable basic text Mm. um so that's what we've been trying to unpack so that's another project i can't wait <laughs> but it's a, that hopefully that will be out this well with COVID nineteen I'm not sure but mm-hmm. maybe this year maybe beginning of next year um, the third one is what I've been working on in this in this um, extraordinary time in which we're living um, a Turkish friend of mine had alerted me to a particular prayer on the Prophet uh, a salawat which um, he said is attributed to Ibn Arabi by Ibn Arabi and his opinion. And he wanted us to put it in the same book with the, the, the book of daily prayers. 
So um, a colleague of mine and I started to look at the prayer and uh, we've been working on it for the last two, three months in this lockdown, uh, almost daily. Um, the prayer itself is very short, but it has uh, suddenly unlocked a completely different dimension to Ibn Arabi's writing, mm. which was very, very unexpected. Yeah. Often happens, you know, the unexpected happens. So this is your first preview of, of the possibility that this will appear as a book, um, which we're working on at the moment. Okay, and would that be its own book, not included with the with the daily prayers? No, it's become its own book. Oh. It's become a, <laughs> okay, it's, great. It's, it's become and and and even has a follow up book on uh, the poems on the letters of the Arabic alphabet, which mm. Ibn Arabi puts in a particular chapter early on in the Futurat. So it's got a lot of added dimensions. So what we've actually had to do is is um, we've been introduced to a different way of looking at Ibn Arabi's writing, which I think is maybe important to share. Hmm. Um, so far today, most people would approach these texts in a, a, a, let's say, trying to understand them intellectually as best they can and feel the quality of them um, and understand as much meaning as one can from them. But there are other dimensions to these texts, which is, is especially the case when you get into the poetry. So letters become important. The, the, the meaning of letters becomes important. The number symbology becomes important. The cosmology becomes important. So, it, for example, each... Um, each letter in the Arabic alphabet corresponds to a number, corresponds to a cosmological degree, corresponds, in fact, to, uh, from another point of view, to one of the spiritual realities of the prophets. So all of this is like a kaleidoscopic structure wow. where you can, you can look at... Uh, the world from or the particular image of contemplation from many different angles, each of which informs the other, and each of which has resonances in its own universe as well. So each of these are universes, just like we, we think of the universe in, in, in physical terms. Uh, that has, that's one element. If we were to think of letters, we would see another universe with also with all all the things that are in this universe are in the universe of letters. All that's in the universe of letters and in the universe of manifestation is in the universe of numbers. So each of these becomes a universe of contemplation because you can see the same thing appearing in the different realms. So that's why I say, that's why we, we've begun to describe it as kaleidoscopic. Mm. It's in its very important dimension of Ibn Arabi's writing. I gave you the example of you know, right at the beginning of this surah, which appears in a in a human form, um, this this breaks all the rules of what we think things are. After all, we think that a surah is a chapter in the Quran; it is words on a page, or it is words recited. But actually, 
it may appear in its reality quite differently. And this corresponds to Ibn Arabi's um, uh, teaching that meaning descends first to the heart and then to the other faculties. So the meaning that descends to the heart is one thing, is whole, entire. When it appears through the other faculties, let's say the, the sense of sight or the sense of hearing, it is uh, now beginning to differentiate. So what we see in the world through the senses is differentiated and we have to return through the practice of the heart to the contemplation of meaning as it descends to the heart directly because then everything is clear everything is uh, is simple uh, because it's the same truth and reality which is being reflected here this way here that way at this moment this time in another form at another moment and so on so, so that's it, the kind of universe, sorry to finish, it's just that's the kind of universe Ibn Arabi is inviting us all to start to inhabit. Yeah, I was just thinking in your description that what he wrote was meant to be understood uh, on other levels, if not consciously, precisely because what he was writing had multiple meanings and, and correspondences to things that uh, that he knew he was transmitting, but that we don't necessarily consciously realize when we're taking it in, but are, may nonetheless be received through the heart, as you say, or, or through the, the unconscious to be um, mediated and uh, parsed out later on and realized on these other levels, be they, you know, sight, imagination, uh, intellect. So I'm just kind of working through that idea because it's a fascinating one. And uh, Well, I think it's very important that, um, to, to try to grapple with uh, because this is one of the meanings, for example, that Ibn Arabi derives from uh, a well-known tradition that the Quran descended entirely to Muhammad in one night and then was parceled up in chapters at different times. Mm. So it had already been revealed, if you like, at, at a certain level. And yet, uh, he, in life, these chapters and surahs and verses and so on had to reveal themselves uh, piece by piece. But it's a, bit, it's a bit of the reverse of writing a book. When you write a book, you have to write a sentence and then you have to write another one and a chapter and a series of chapters and you complete the book. This is the other way around. The book is complete already. It appears, it descends to the heart. And then you have to work through all the process of the manifesting of it at this level. Well, um, I think we're going to end it there, Stephen. Um, I just want to say first, uh, first of all, that this book, um, Unlimited Mercifier, which we've been discussing, among other things, it was published, uh, what year was that? Uh, 1999. So it's 21 years old. You have a, a more recent book, in addition to the, some of the ones you mentioned, like the, the Seven Days of the Heart. Was that the, 
the the name of the book of prayers there are a few tr- um translations of these um smaller works that you that are published by anka publishing um and you have one that just came out was it last year um a translation of one of, of one chapter in the futuhat um is the is the title of that one the the alchemy of human happiness that's correct yeah right so uh, i haven't gotten that one yet um it's in the mail but uh Maybe maybe we'll get a chance to to talk about that one at at some point. Um, that one's available on Amazon too. All of these are. I'll I'll include links to um, Anka Publishing to the Ibn Arabi, Ibn Arabi Society website. Um, any other resources that um, that we can direct people to, or are those the the two best ones, Stephen? Um, yeah, I think those are the two main ones. The Ibn Arabi Society site has a huge amount of material. Um, and uh, there are podcasts on there. There are um, articles from previous journals by different people. And you'll also f- find um, some links to things like a series of online talks, which are being done at the moment, every two weeks, organized by the society. So plenty of material for people to get themselves into. On the Anchor website, by the way, I would just say, um, as a small publisher, if you buy from Amazon, it uh, doesn't do the publisher a great deal of good. So if you buy from the small publisher's website, uh, it brings in money, which means that we can actually produce further books. Great. So um, We'll definitely get a link of that. Yeah, then. I'll, I'll link support, there. No, no links to your Amazon. small publisher, I think, would great. be the... <laughs> Absolutely. Would be the message. All right, no problems there. So, uh, thank you again, Stephen, for Pleasure. speaking with us today. It was it was great. We we really enjoyed having this talk with you, and uh, yeah, we look forward to speaking again in the future sometime. Hopefully, we can't hear about. Uh, can't wait to hear about your future projects and yeah. them being completed. Yeah, and as soon as possible. Hopefully, we'll come out. Yeah, and in the, in the meantime, we'll be uh, we'll be catching up on uh, Resurrection Earth Rule and uh, <laughs> oh yeah, so much. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, thank you, and take care, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Thank Thank you, you, Stephen. Thank you.